Good morning, and welcome to episode five of the Health Conscious Podcast. To our new listeners, we really hope you enjoy our content. And to our returning listeners, we thank you for your continued support. As always, I am your host, Jefferson Akers. And today, Milland and I are very fortunate to be joined by Roberta Schwartz. Roberta is the Executive Vice President and Chief Innovation Officer at Houston Methodist, where she is responsible for leading the transformation of care delivery through digital innovation. Academically, Roberta received her undergraduate degree from Barnard College, a master's from Johns Hopkins University, and a PhD from the University of Texas School of Public Health. Additionally, Roberta was the 2019 recipient of the American College of Healthcare Executives, Healthcare Executives Regents Award. We really hope you enjoy this episode because from a content standpoint, we feel it has something to offer all of our listeners. And without further ado, let's get started. Roberta, thank you so much for joining us. We've had a lot of impressive guests, but just in glancing at your background, we're really excited to have somebody of your caliber on the podcast. So again, we really appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. I'm honored to be here. Great. So I'll be getting us kicked off with questions for the day, Roberta. And as you know, innovation is com- one of the most commonly used words in healthcare. And so my first question has two parts. Number one, how do you personally define innovation? And then number two, how do you go about maintaining a culture of innovation at such a large enterprise like Houston Methodist? Um, so for me, innovation is, is the, simple, the simple concept of changing the way we do things, right? And, and we define things as big eyes and little eyes, you know? So, so you can change something really, really small and you can change something really big. Um, so you can change the entire way that the, all the patients um, call the hospital. So I can move from a decentralized call center to a centralized call center. But for us, in terms of the way that I'm looking at digital innovation, and I really, Methodist being such an incredibly innovative institution, going back to our history of its founding in the Spanish flu epidemic, to um, where we are today, really a hundred years later, still dealing with pandemic, but you know, I mean, some things never change. Um, But as we really look at it in the world of digital innovation, we're aiming to say, what do you need a call center for altogether? You know, we wanna get rid of call centers and kind of move to a place where it's all self-service. So what do you need a call center for? So for us, innovation is disruption, disruption of the way that we've been doing healthcare for a very long time and a move to changing it to a different way to do that business. So, I mean, we're sitting on an innovative platform, right? We're sitting on a podcast. Well, if you had asked me 20 years ago, what's a podcast? I'd be sitting there saying, are you talking a foreign language? And today that's just the way that we do business and the things I listen to in the car or on my phone all the time. In healthcare, I want you looking back at the way we do business today saying, that's a very antiquated way of doing business. Of course, like it was obvious that we should have been doing these things differently. You know, now, um, now we actually are. And, but again, that term innovation is just a change. It's just a change in the way we do business. 
No, it's interesting to hear from my vantage point how you obviously pursue a lot of complex endeavors at Houston Methodist, but it all comes back to the central idea of how can we do something differently. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and, and you hope that that changes for the better, right? Sometimes, sometimes if you change the way you do business, a lot of times you have to look at it and say, well, that wasn't smart and go back to the way you did it before um, and try a different path. Um, and I think that's one of the, the reasons that we've been so successful is that we celebrate our failures. We celebrate, you know, trying something. It, it was funny, I was on the phone with... Um, uh, my, uh, I have a special needs daughter and she went to camp and, um, and she can't speak and she can't really use her hands. So communicating with her is, is fairly hard for the, the teachers. And she was in her kind of stroller wheelchair and she fell out of it. And the poor counselor is just beside herself. And um, we got on the phone and we looked at our daughter and did the assessment. And then I, you know, I got on the phone and I looked at the counselors and I said, look, you need to calm down. Um, but, you know, you need to know that if you're not, if she doesn't fall, if she doesn't try, you know, something new that pushes her to a limit, then she's not, she's not going to get very far. We need her to push that limit. And if it means she falls and stumbles, that's okay. Like that, that, so she got, you know, a scraped knee. That's what all kids do when they ride their bike for the first time. You know, it's, and, and that's what that culture of innovation is all about. It's pushing it to its limit and not being afraid to stumble. And, you know, no, no companies that you look at that are really su successful today won't tell you that they made a good amount of mistakes along the way. So Roberta, you talk about pushing the limits with innovation and exploring new paths. As the chief innovation officer, how do you balance this fine line between choosing which technologies to pursue versus the cost to develop and implement these technologies, and then the affordability to patients, and specifically those that are low income? You know, we've actually, innovation is, is probably the most beautiful for the widest variety of audiences of anything that we've ever done. Um, because if you think about it, if you think about um, telemedicine and getting to alternative pathways of making things available, it's interesting. Um, one of the companies we talked to, it kind of took me by surprise, um, said, actually, if you want to get to lower income location and make healthcare available, you make it available on the phone. Because of all things that um, that are that population is going to make sure that they keep running and keep paying for it's their phone. It is the probably one of the most valued items. Sometimes even more than housing, that phone and that communication link. So if you can push healthcare to the phone, you have a shot of getting to a large swath of our population. And when you make self-service available to, to a variety of people and you remove the barriers to care and you make it so that they don't have to get on a phone call and wait for 40 minutes or have a conversation or jump through 16 hoops, you can just get on schedule and do almost when you want, as you want it within self-service, you, you change the way people interact with a system. And that's that's very impressive. Now, in terms of keeping the cost down, 
the technologies, there are those technologies that are worth it and there are those technologies that are not worth it. And I do think that I'm, I'm fairly impressed with not all, but many technology companies who either say, I know I need to recognize that this is either going to be an additional cost or I need to worth, make it worthwhile, or I have to reduce the costs of other pieces of the business to fit into that business model. And I think that um, companies that we choose to work with are very cognizant of that. When a company comes in and just says, hey, you know, you just need to pay for it because I'm a better way to do business. That's generally what I'll be like, sure you are like, you know, prove it. And then, then it's hard to prove. But, but I think that organizations like ours or New York Resby or um, particularly University of Pennsylvania are always going to demand that there is a uh, level of rigor to understanding whether or not we are getting a return on our investment. And again, when we look at these technologies, that's what you're looking for. It's the return on investment. And it's not always the return you can, went in for it originally, but it's it's really impressive to see how much further along our goals these technologies are taking us. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it seems like self-service using phone technologies is one way to reduce the barrier to care. And then the other way is really organizations demanding return on the investment and essentially creating value to sort of impact the affordability of the technologies. And you asked the question in two different ways, right? You had a first part and a second part, which is you know, how, how are these technologies really um, demonstrating that can, can you get an, I mean, a chief enough price? Is it you know, worthwhile buying all these technologies? That's kind of one set of questions on, um, on getting that return on your investment. The second one is how do you reduce the barriers to care on uh, lower income, uh, a kind of a make sure there's health equity across the board in all different parts of our population. And that really is, I, I do think that, that technology is a very strong sweet spot, whether it's um, providing it in other languages. I mean, one of the things we did right away in our rooms is um, when we put in iPads in every one of our rooms, we put the language translation software right on the iPads in the room. And one of the way, reasons we did that is everyone's tracking around to try to find the right translator or you know, get basically the one translation unit that's, that's you know, for every two floors and running around with the machine. You know, when you could get it cheap enough and put it on every machine in the room, now there's language translation like now immediately accessible to every practitioner and every person who's in that room. That is beautiful. I mean, that means you're gonna do better care on someone who might not speak English. Roberta, coming into 2021, you had been pretty open about Houston Methodist wanting to disrupt its business in every aspect. Can you talk about the nuances of change management required to increase the adoption of new technologies from staff that may not be tech savvy or may even be technology averse? Well, I'm not tech savvy and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not the best. And um, believe it or not, as I sit across the table um, currently for my husband, um, I, sometimes I have to ask him for help turning on my lights um, as he's put them all on lovely technology in our home. Um, although I will tell you that my friend Alexa over here is always a little bit helpful in that regard. She's probably going to start talking right now, but, um, but as we, 
as we look at um, every aspect of our business, one of the reasons I use that phrase is that many people think that innovation and digital innovation in the, um, the healthcare marketplace is all about uh, patients and all about the patients coming in. And they think of it, they, they define, and I love this new term, right? The digital front door, the digital front door and healthcare innovation, that's digital innovation. And in some institutions, their entire innovation shop, that's really all they do. And we recognize that that's not, that's like, it's like skimming the surface on what you can do to disrupt your business. So we have a team that works on digital innovation in HR, digital innovation in the revenue cycle, digital innovation. And we recognize that our job as, um, like I, I often feel like the grease on the wheels like what's stopping us in every aspect of our business from not getting these innovations in place. So if you look at innovations to, to identify people um, who uh, want to work in your organization, one of my favorite technologies was a um, chat bot that actually spoke to candidates in the middle of the night. So when is your night staff wanna look for their jobs? Well, they wanna look for a job at two o'clock in the morning. Let me tell you when your HR office is closed, two o'clock in the morning. So you know, at two o'clock in the morning, how do you attract that candidate? Will you do it with basically technology? So we look at hiring, we look at onboarding, we look at keeping in touch with people, we look at you know, how do you enter the organization? How do you check in? Are we gonna use fingerprint or iPrint technology? How do we do that with employees, with patients? All of those for us are open season on changing and innovating or changing the way we do our business. Point well taken on kind of the breadth of technologies you evaluate, but even more importantly, how you can increase adoption likelihood by making that technology as tailored to the practice or the end user as possible. Yeah, and, and the amazing part is how many times someone will bring us something from the front line. Have you looked at this? Have you looked at that? Like they love sending things over the fence saying, check it out, you know, check out what they're gonna do. And again, if they're a low, let, let's take a technology, um, one that we implemented called Genome. Um, Genome was, I mean, it's basically outsourced genetic counselors. And one of, you do, one of the reasons that you look at that is you as an organization can't afford to hire the genetic counselor for cardiac, genetic counselor for OBGYN, genetic counselor for six different kinds of cancer, genetic counselor for, right? So they basically aggregate these genetic counselors across 20 different organizations. And then they do have the expertise that you need and you can call on them when you need them. And they even do the billing and collecting. So aside from an implementation free fee, it's basically free to your organization. You pay for them when someone doesn't have insurance, but, but you look at that and you recognize that um, that power of the technology to, um, it, it's, it's super simple to adopt it, to say to everyone, hey, guess what? You know that genetic counselor you've been looking for and you've been looking at me for a huge amount of budget? Guess what? I got it for you. You can have it tomorrow and it's free for you. And don't worry about it. We made it available as an organization. People, I mean, the adoption, it's like, wait, I don't have to fight you for budget money and you made this available to me? Okay, you know, and, and sometimes it's almost too easy and they forget that they're like, wait, I, I have to fight you? Like, I don't have to fight you. Huh, you know, 
and and it's um yeah it's a I gave it to you slightly differently than the way you wanted it, but I got it for you nonetheless. And and that's um sometimes that change management is so easy, and then sometimes um sometimes it's interesting in that the business model was already changing, like it it couldn't continue the way it was going. And so we had to find a technological solution and no one likes it, including me, but because you brought the technology, you're the reason for the change. Uh, give you an example of that, um, uh, telepsychiatry. Great example of another one where, sure, I'd, I'd love all the psychiatrists to continue coming to the hospital. That would be spectacular. Well, they don't go to hospitals anymore. Psychiatrists don't like going to hospitals. Um, and so you had tons of patients coming through the emergency room that needed evaluations. You didn't have psychiatrists that wanted to come to a hospital. So to a certain extent, you had to find a solution and people assume that I love it. And I'm like, oh no, some of them I don't always love, but it, it's what I've got. Like it, it may not be perfect, but you know, I had to find something. Not, not all technologies in healthcare are ones you, um, you just, get super excited about, but, um, but it was a solution. It might not be the best one, but it's the one I've got. At least I have a solution, right? Roberta, I have to say, hearing you talk about some of these innovative technologies has been really fun to listen to. To kind of build off more on that note, um, you know, I know that Houston Methodist is currently partnered with Amazon Web Services and Paraveda to essentially develop this voice recognition technology that can automatically translate the patient-physician interaction into the EHR. And I can see how this would be really useful to improving that patient experience and reducing physician burnout, which one of the common factors is high EHR documentation times. So can you just kind of talk about what Houston Methodist hopes to achieve out of this partnership and how is this going to impact future partnerships centered around improving patient experience? You know, we, Methodist has taken kind of a, if I write like the 10 rules of like our innovation, you know, and every institution that would write them would write them a little bit differently. Um, you would see at the top of that list is that um, we don't develop, you know, we're not a development shop. Now our research institute that creates cures and creates drugs and sometimes builds, you know, technology or robotics or whatever it is, like right? So you've, you've got that end of the spectrum um, is like they are doing development. For our digital innovation, we generally do not do um, alpha innovation. We generally do beta innovation. I do not have data scientists. I do not pretend to do building on those type of things. This is, has been the exception. And I will tell you, I feel incredibly blessed um, to have gotten into a partnership with Amazon where both we and they are really interested in this voice technology. So voice technology is fantastic, right? We all love our Siri, we all love our Alexa. You know, we all love, you know, all those things that we talk to and talk back to us. They're not perfect. You know, the amount of times they do the, I cannot understand, or I'm sorry, you know, that is not, whatever, whatever they say to me all the time. Um, either I talk too fast or I'm crazy. But, uh, but when we look at this voice technology for physicians, you recognize that sitting behind a computer and typing is not the future. Now, the question is, healthcare is complicated. If healthcare was simple, 
everyone would have done it a long time ago. You know, it is not as simple as reorder my Tide Pods. When they have a conversation, they're going to want a conversation that that conversation is then dumped into discrete fields within an electronic medical record that flow from what part of the record to another part of the record. So when you do it, what seemingly is easy is really complicated. And so I would say we, we got into it with small projects and we're recognizing that this long-term partnership to get us from where we were to get us to where we're going is, um, is worthwhile, but complicated. So we've rolled out the first 10 physicians um, that are speaking instead of typing, but then, right, it needs a series of corrections because you got to you know, you have a, have a learning environment to get those 10 to the point where they can sign off on the notes. And kind of one of my bellwether physicians is um, Dr. Desai, and he's a champion of um, technologies in many, many ways, and uh, is currently serving as one of our chief quality officer is in one of our hospitals, in addition to being a, a working physician. And um, so he'll always test it. And he goes, He's like, it's got a lot of promise, you know, we're keeping on working on it. And I think that's, um, again, it's one of those things that will fundamentally in five years, we're going to look back and say, who typed in the darn computers? Um, but, but the road from here to there is filled with potholes. And so I think we're just, as long as we're not afraid to go through a number of them, come up, scrape off the you know bumps and keep going. Um, this is one where we love developing, not only because we are loving developing it, but because we love being with our partner and doing this with um, folks like Amazon, with folks who know what they're doing is, is pretty incredible. Thank you for sharing your insights on this. Um, I wanna take a step back and kind of zoom out on a higher level and transition to a different point, which is in recent months, you know, CMS raised its reimbursements for home health care. How do you think they're going to react and respond to the evolution of technologies that I think is going to better support digital health and home health and remote patient monitoring in the next five to 10 years? Um, so what I would say is that hospital at home Home healthcare are the wave of the future. Being able to um, provide the care that people need without having to come to the doctor, without having to come to the hospital is where we're moving to. And if you think about it and you think about how um, lucky we are to be at the beginning of this journey with the technologies we now have, it's, it's very likely. So you already, you already are heavily seeing the move to telemedicine. That happened during COVID. So all of us were at less than 5%, aside from places like Kaiser and a few others. We moved to like 85% and we're settling down into 30, 35%. I think that we can drive that number closer to 50% um, if the reimbursement stays and the government doesn't backtrack on the reimbursement. So I think you know it'll be fairly reimbursement dependent. Once you have the doctor that doesn't have to be in front of you that you can reach out to, and you can get the supplies and what is needed to the patient at home, then you can do healthcare in the home with a much less, um, the barrier to entry to get that done with a lower level technician at a higher level of care is substantial. 
So like Dispatch, for those, if you don't know that company, um, fabulous company started, I believe, out of Denver. And um, they have an entire emergency room in a Prius. And so they actually ran side by side with the ambulance. The ambulance, like the city of Denver paid, dispatch went out and the ambulance paid, went out. And if dispatch said, we can get this done, then the ambulance goes away and dispatch treats the person at home. And if dispatch says, no, 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 this is like a stroke, you need to take them to the hospital, then dispatch goes away and the ambulance takes them. So they look at this dual model of like, you go in, but if you can figure it out by getting this emergency room in the home and they can handle it, then the answer is like, we don't need to take you to the, the hospital. And I think that's where this world is going, is trying to figure out how to get the Prius into your house with everything that you need. And that always amazed me. I was like, well, like why a Prius? And they said, A, we got everything to fit. And B, you know, it, you know, there's a bit of it, it looks and sounds good environmentally and you know what they were doing to have it be in a Prius. So, um, but I do like that, but there are lots of companies. I mean, uh, Mayo Clinic just invested heavily in medically home, you know, and looking at some of those other companies that are there, uh, Contessa, you know, Oak Street, other kinds of companies that are saying we can do Medicare and Medicaid at a cheaper price if we basically keep it out of an expensive healthcare environment. And, and they're not wrong. Um, does that worry me as, a healthcare organization, you know, who um, my business model um, is heavily on people coming to me and paid per click. Um, yes, but I think the beauty of my organization is we haven't been afraid and have walked away from people because they're taking money out of our pocket because we recognize that the models are changing. And if we do the right thing and move in the right way, reimbursement will catch up. That is a really interesting example, but it kind of meets what we've been seeing and it, it really matches the perception. Um, shifting to a different note, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about the industry and technology and innovation. Looking more to the personal development side, what are the three biggest pieces of advice that you can give to young and ambitious healthcare leaders and students that aspire to be in your shoes one day? So um, lots of people come uh, for fun advice. Um, I, I feel blessed um, to have uh, mentored and, and watched so many people grow that I look forward to working for one day um, if my career is long enough. But I, I love watching and seeing them grow. Um, I always say to people, without a doubt, my best piece of advice is you build your career looking out the front view of a car, um, not the rear view mirror which is that you just keep going forward one step at a time. And uh, when you look in the rear view mirror, you're looking back on the career that was not forward to what you wanna be. So, um, so, you know, you are always looking for what is interesting, what you become passionate about, and the person who you work for, who inspires you um, to be better at whatever it is you're doing. And you should never be afraid to have that be a lateral move or even sometimes a step backwards. Because if you do that, sometimes it's to a place that you're more excited and more passionate about um, that you can then move forward more quickly. Another piece of advice I give is that traditional models and places of care are changing. So this whole technology world that we've just spent a good bit of time talking about didn't exist. It didn't exist when I went into the field. 
So the fact that there are all of these places wide open for interested people to actually work in is fantastic. Um, it's not that you have to go to a traditional hospital or traditional health system. Now the world's changing. And um, so I would say, don't assume that even I, if starting out again, would say the best place to be would be being a hospital administrator and running a hospital. You know, I may say, oh my gosh, the more exciting places here or there. Um, but I think that there are lots of different evolving opportunities on the physician side, on the hospital side, on the technology side that make this world a very exciting place. Um, and, and don't afraid, be afraid to change if it isn't exciting and it isn't the place you wanna be. Um, not too many times people will start looking at you once your resume jumps every two years, people will look at you sideways. Um, but I think that um, if, if you're not in a place that makes you happy, it probably is time for a change. Uh, it was, it's funny because I've been away for two weeks and um, you know, I, I started reading all the like, oh my goodness, what am I coming back to? And this one's complaining and you know, COVID's going out of control and here it is. And like a step back and I was like, oh goodness gracious. And then I went, oh my God, I'm so excited to go in. Like, I'm so excited to like jump back into the stuff and start talking to people. And I was like, oh my God, I definitely belong in my job because if I'm getting excited about all that stuff, then I'm in the right place. Awesome. So it sounds like the biggest advice that I've gone here is, you know, keeping a very open mindset, looking to explore and not being afraid of making moves, even if it's a lateral move or move backwards, as long as it follows your passion. On a similar note, on a, you know, as a leader, um, what are the best lessons you've learned in crisis management and navigating conflicts? Being calm. There's no doubt that um, in crisis management, and navigating conflicts, you have to keep calm and breathe um, and, you know, not be afraid to make decisions. So the worst thing that you can do in any crisis is during the headlights, I'm unable to focus and I'm unable to function. And um, when people come up to me and bring me their, what is like the world is coming apart issue. And I just stay totally calm it sometimes unnerves people, but, and I, I don't mean it to be unnerving, but I'll say to them all the time, please don't mistake my calmness for not caring. If I'm not calm, we can't actually tackle the issue. And when I find my blood pressure, you know, going up a lot, a lot of times I'll say, you know what, if you'll just give me a few minutes, like I just, I need to walk outside. And for me, a lot of times I'll walk up to a patient care unit and drop in on a patient or drop in on a staff because I can always reset my, my mind frame and then come back down, listen to the issue and say, look, we have to take some action. Here's where I think we should start. I'll usually only go to a point where I don't think we can back out of it if we need to, but let's at least get started. But, but it is always calm thoughtful, listening, and decisive action that moves you forward from the place you are to kind of a new mindset. And, and, you know, again, a lot of people will mistake that for not caring, but for me, it's just a like, hey guys, breathe, breathe. Okay, here's what we're going to do next. And then we'll figure out, you know, one step at a time and just move forward. Um, and people look to those two traits 
as probably the reason that we've kind of led through this very calmly. And, and it doesn't come without stress, um, but that's, it's kind of part of the gig. Roberta, there are a lot of women in health administration, both in academia and in the field. And from your perspective as a woman in hospital administration, what are some of the risks that you've taken in your career that have enabled you to grow as a leader? You know, there's a lot of literature on the fact that um, women, and it's, it's kind of proven facts that in the classroom, women are less likely to raise their hands. Um, they're less likely to um, interrupt a male colleague. They're less likely to kind of go into an office and ask for a raise. Um, they're less likely, you know, when you look at it of what women are um, less likely to do, there's a number of different things. I think the thing that I've done successfully as a woman is always raise my hands and say, I'll take that. I'll do that. I'll try that. You know, just bring it on, give it to me. And it's um, an extraordinary amount of energy that I have. Um, as oftentimes I'll say to my family, like it's, it's probably too much energy, but that desire to just try something and do something and, um, and have fun while doing it has really been that thing that's made me successful. Um, I think that there's no doubt everyone's going to tell somebody in a leadership position like this, that they got there because of um, the fact that they were smart, the fact that they were good. But for women, oftentimes the difference is the willingness to apply for the position at all and the willingness to raise their hands and say, oh no, I can do that. And I probably wouldn't be in my job if it wasn't for my husband who looked at me when there was the opening at the level above me. And I said, oh no, I'm, I'm a great number two. I'm not a great number one. Like it, let's just leave that to other people. I'm a great woman behind the scenes. And he said, great. He's like, they're gonna hire someone who's not as smart, you know, doesn't work as hard and is not getting, you know, getting paid three times as much. And you're going to come home and complain every night. He's like, please apply for the darn job. And, and that's why I did it. Um, I, I didn't do it because I was saying like, I really, 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 really want that job. You know, it was like, I love what I'm doing. I mean, I've, I've loved every one of the jobs I'm doing and I'd be happy to go back and do it again. Um, but I think as women, we are less likely to do that. Roberta, you made a really fantastic point on how having a hunger for more and being willing to take on more responsibility has allowed you to succeed in your career. And I think that's something all of our listeners can take and apply in their professional lives as well. The last question I wanted to ask you was about your tenure with Houston Methodist. You've been with Houston Methodist for about 20 years. And what I wanted you to kind of close us out with is how have you been able to grow and refine yourself as a professional over that time while still remaining with the same organization? Um, I've been blessed because I've loved um, Houston Methodist. It fits me personally. Um, the innovation that they do, uh, the willingness to try new things, uh, the willingness to take some risks has been just unbelievable. But um, every year at Houston Methodist has been different. Uh, the year of Hurricane Harvey, the year of COVID, you know, unfortunately, 20. 21 looks a little bit like 2020, but um, 
But as we basically think about each year, I, it almost has a, like a defining moment or a defining thing that happens in that year that um, has made each year fairly unique. That's kind of one of the things that kind of keeps me interested. Obviously, I've progressed in the jobs that I'm doing, but more importantly um, is all of the ancillary things that I've gotten involved with at the organization whether it's our DEI activities or our vaccination program or things that you know I, I almost volunteer for on my free time because I love the kinds of things that we're doing. And um, if, if I didn't find the outlets at work, you know, I decided to pursue a PhD in the middle of it. Or by the way, you know, had to raise the three children. So you know what? By the time you look in that rearview mirror and you say to me, "Oh my gosh, it's been 20 years," I'm like, "Has it really been 20 years?" Like, I swear I just got there. Um, and the only thing that that keeps me knowledge of how many years I've been there is that I was pregnant with my first child um, and took her to college last fall. So you know, it's like that's almost my children are the markers for me because three of my children have grown up at Houston Methodist. They've grown up rounding with me. They've grown up, you know, every one of my kid volunteers at Methodist. Every one of my kids, you know, we're, it's a family affair. My husband works at Methodist. So, I mean, for us, family and the hospital are kind of, are kind of one. Um, and I think that I can't right now, can't imagine being anywhere else. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know where life will take me. We'll, we'll see. Um, for, for the moment, I can't, I can't imagine doing anything but what I'm doing. That's awesome to hear, Roberta. And from my perspective, and I hope our listeners feel the same way, it's been very refreshing to see how you've kind of maintained a level of open-mindedness as your North Star, and it's brought you this far along throughout the course of, career, of your career. So again, thank you for joining us. You are an outstanding guest, and I have no doubt that our listeners are really going to enjoy this episode. Thank you so much. It was just, and I enjoyed listening to your other podcasts and enjoyed kind of hearing what you had to say from other people. Um, so I hope that you keep doing what you're doing. It's fantastic. Oh, we definitely will. And again, thank you for taking the time, Roberta. Absolutely. My pleasure.